So just to recap, we are on a series called I Know You By Name. And the whole premise of this series is that we might know, get to know God better through the names that he has revealed about who he is through the Old Testament. So when we look at all of God's different names, it gives us some glimpse into an aspect of his personality, of his character. And the more we get to know God and who he's revealed to be, the more we can walk in faith and stand in incredible faith on who God is. We can settle some of the questions that we have. Well, we question no more because we know that we know that we know who God is. And we don't need to go around those same circles of doubt anymore. But we can stand in faith for who we know God to be. So the, we, we started with the Lord is my banner. He's the one that as I stand for God, God will stand for me. We looked at the Lord who makes you holy. That he, he is the one who sanctifies me. I mess up, but he cleans me up and he proclaims me holy. That's amazing. We looked at the Lord is my judge. He is the one who will judge my life and he is just and fair and he is full of grace and truth and loving kindness. And I can stand on the word of God and his revealed character. And no matter what happens, God will not change. And I will be blessed by him. I am holy. You are holy because of who God is. You have a righteous judge. I have a righteous judge because of who God is. And the Lord is the banner of my life. And he wants to be the banner of your life as well. Hallelujah. You can't take any of that away from me. It's in here. It's written. And we can stand on it. It shapes how we live. You know who else God is? God is something else. You're going to have to hit play on there. See if it'll do. Yeah? At the top. It's worth it because I made such an awesome PowerPoint. <laughs> There you go, Jehovah Rapha. I am the Lord who heals you. The Lord, my healer. Now this appears first in another of the brilliant passages in Exodus. So turn with me to Exodus in chapter 15. And we're going from verse 22. So when Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, so they've literally just come through the waters, God has done an amazing miracle. The the armies of Pharaoh have been pursuing the Israelites and they've come to the shores of the Red Sea. There's nowhere to go. There's an army behind. There's an ocean in front. And Moses is asked to place the staff over the waters and the waters miraculously part. They heap up on each side and the Israelites walk through on dry ground. Pharaoh's armies charge after them, trying to annihilate them somewhere in the middle of the ocean. But as the last Israelite steps out of the ocean, the Lord closes the waves back over the Egyptian army. And finally, these people are free. They've just stepped onto dry land and started singing praises to God that they are finally free. That God has destroyed their enemies and they can now become a free people of God. That's where we are in the story. Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea and they moved into the desert of Shur. They travelled in this desert for three days without finding water. When they came to the oasis of Marah, the water was too bitter to drink, so they called that place Marah, which means bitter. Then the people complained and turned against Moses. 
What are we going to drink? They demanded. So Moses cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water, and it made the water good to drink. It was there at Marah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness to him. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping all his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. They've just come through the Red Sea. They've just hit their first obstacle. The waters are not as good as they wanted them to be. And the, straight away, what do they do? They complain against Moses. They say, uh, what are we going to do? We're going to die out here in the desert. And uh, there's something about the way we behave when our needs are not met or God doesn't meet our expectations. The Israelites were thirsty, there was no prospect of water, they thought they had, that it would be good to drink, and a pang of fear and doubt just courses through the camp. I've seen this so many times in different places, where things don't turn out quite as we imagine, and then collectively people start to panic. And this one, the problem is solved straight away. It's really straightforward. God tells Moses to throw a particular piece of wood in, and suddenly all is fine. Phew! It was like a little gentle heads up as to what was coming. It's a suggestion that God is giving to the Israelites that it's not always going to be plain sailing. It's not always going to be uh, easy security in this wilderness journey that they're embarking on. It's like God is saying, you're going to have to learn to trust me. And then he backs it up with this incredible promise. In verse 26, God says this. If you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping all his decrees, then I will not make you suffer or any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians. If they will be faithful to God, if they will walk with him, if they will learn to trust him, he will not allow them to experience anything that the Egyptians went through. Well, what did the Egyptians go through? Firstly, they went through lack of water. When the Nile turned to blood, it was their water source that was cut off. There was a thirst in the land. All the clean drinking water had been transformed to blood. What else did they suffer? They suffered a lack of food. When the Nile turned to blood, there was nothing to irrigate the crops with. So it, this was a, a farming community. The, the Nile Delta was, was supposed to be like the breadbasket of the world. It was this place where food could be produced on, on a mass scale. And they invented all kinds of wonderful irrigation systems. Well, the, it's now blood. So the food uh, was reducing. They also had nothing to hydrate their animals with. So all of the livestock began to perish. And then God sends locusts. That just strips everything. Every single crop, every field, every vineyard just totally destroyed with the locusts coming through. So uh, famine and lack of food was a real problem for the Egyptians. God said, I will not allow you to taste famine or lack of food in this desert. Then there's destruction of property. You think about the plague of hail that destroyed 
uh, everything that they owned, and also the destruction of the livestock. And God was saying, I'm not going to allow you to taste destruction of your property. I'm not going to, I'm going to make it so that you don't lose a thing. And then they had sickness. Think of the plague, plague of boils. They, become, they became really unwell. God was promising at this moment, just the other side of the Red Sea, you're not going to suffer sickness on this journey we're going on. And then finally, death. That was another plague for the Egyptians. You're not going to taste death in this wilderness. And there were some incredible miracles that happened amongst the Israelites, like their shoes weirdly didn't wear out, and their clothes weirdly didn't wear out, and it was like God fulfilling this promise. You're not going to taste anything that the Egyptians tasted. So here at the beginning of this wilderness journey, God explicitly says, I'm going to keep all of these things from you. I will personally make sure you have enough water, you have enough food, that your property won't be destroyed or lost to you, that I will protect you from sickness and I will keep you from death. And I want you to know that that's not who I am to you. I am the Lord, your healer. The one who watches over you and keeps you in one piece. Okay? What a promise to receive at the beginning of this wilderness walk that they're about to go on. You can trust me for that, God was saying. This is who I am. So when they were threatened with thirst or hunger or sickness or loss or facing death, how did they respond? Well, let's read on in in chapter 16. Then the whole of the community of Israel set out from Elim and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin, between Elim and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. Aren't you glad you're not Moses? (laughs) Sometimes it sucks being a leader. (laughs) First test after this promise that God has given them. They turn on Moses. They had this promise of God in their hands, freshly given to them. They'd just seen the power of God like in a way that none of us had. And they had this fresh promise in their hands. And it's as like they said, thanks God, that's great. And then they got on with life as though God hadn't said anything. They got all stressed. They got all angry. They reacted like any base human being without God would react. And because they were overcome by fear instead of faith, a change came over them. They seemed to lose sight of God's intervention, all of his recent displays of power on their behalf. And instead of strengthening themselves in the truth of who God had shown himself to be, they started constructing a faulty theology to explain why things are going wrong. They said, You have brought us out into this wilderness that we may die of hunger. When they said that to Moses, it's as though they were saying it to God. This is what God is doing. They quickly convinced themselves that this was God's plan. And it's the very thing that God had promised that he was not going to do. They allowed fear and discouragement to convince them that somehow suffering and pain and death was part of God's plan for them. And so they turn on Moses because of it. 
So do you see the power of fear and disappointment in bringing doubt and negative questions to God? I think the people of God have been making the same mistake ever since. Allowing doubt and discouragement to set in because our experience doesn't quite always match up with what we believe God must do for us as we pray. Right back in Exodus, God makes this profound statement about his character and his intentions towards his people. He declares unreservedly, I am the Lord who heals you. Full stop. That's who I am, he says. He is in direct opposition to sickness and infirmity and brokenness in all its forms. The minute we we try to claim that God is okay with sickness or is indifferent to our brokenness, we lose something of his essential nature. The Lord confirms who he is throughout scripture. This This specific word, Rapha, it reoccurs 67 times in the Bible. I'm going to share some of these amazing verses. This word Rapha nearly always is associated with God himself. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. Love that. Psalm Psalm, Psalm 103 verses 2 and 3. What about this one? Lord, help! They cried in their trouble. That's a good prayer, by the way. Remember that one. Help! They cried in their trouble. And he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, snatching them from the door of death. Next one. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. How much we need that when life takes its tragic turns and we just need God to come in and heal our hearts that have been broken. He even heals our faithlessness. This is from Jeremiah in chapter 3. Voices are heard on the windswept mountains. The weeping and pleading of Israel's people. For they have chosen crooked paths and forgotten the Lord their God. My wayward children, says the Lord, come back to me and I will heal your wayward hearts. Don't you love that? I can't resist sharing a bit of Isaiah as well. Speaking of the Messiah who was to come and model the healing character of God, he prophesied this. But he, speaking of Jesus, he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. So the Father's passion for total healing in the human race was most powerfully displayed at Jesus' trial and crucifixion. That's why Jesus endured torture. That's why Jesus' body was mutilated beyond recognition. Because he wanted to break open the opportunity for wholeness and healing for the whole human race. It wasn't just for the ones and the twos. It wasn't just at the hands of the great faith healers. It wasn't just for the special ones, whether it be the person praying or the person receiving. It was for everybody. The cross and everything that happened to do with it was not just for the ones and the twos. It was for the human race. 
So he was broken that we may be healed, that by his stripes we may be healed. That's why he did it. There's no compromise there. There's no gray area. It's clear. Jesus was broken that we may be made whole. That's what Isaiah saw, the purpose of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, 400 years before Christ was born. So if you want to know what kind of healer God is, we have to look at Jesus. And in Jesus' day, he was most famous as a teacher and a healer. It was, it was what people flocked from all over the area to come and see him for. They had heard of this man who could teach in a completely different way, as one who had authority, and that everybody who came to him got healed. That's why he had these incredible crowds pressing in on him all the time, because people needed healing. And sometimes I've heard people say, do you know what, Jesus didn't heal everyone. I'm not sure that's true. I can't find that in my Bible. The only place he did less was in his hometown when they wouldn't believe in him. And even there it says he, all he could do was heal a couple of people. So even in this place where there's complete doubt around who Jesus is and what God's intentions is through Jesus, he still heals a couple of people. I love that. He was sometimes selective. You've got that moment at the pool of Bethesda where there's all those people waiting around the pool for the waters to stir, you know that story? And there's that guy who has been disabled for all his years and he can never quite make it into the pool. He says, you know, I want to get well, because Jesus says, do you want to get well? He says, yeah, I do, but when the waters stir, I can never get in first because I've got no one here to chuck me in at the right moment. And Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat and come with me. And the guy gets healed and walks out of the room. I don't know if there was a healing meeting that broke out in the pool of Bethesda, but it doesn't say that in my Bible. It might have just been the one. Jesus seems to be sometimes a little bit selective. I don't know why. But everyone who came to Jesus asking for healing gets healed in my Bible. Can you think of a single case when someone comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me well. And he says, not today. I can't find that. Everyone who comes gets healed. I'm not making this up. Read your Bible. You can't get away from it. Healing is a part of who Jesus is, and healing has always accompanied this message of the gospel of the kingdom. And it was what Jesus specifically trained his disciples to do as well. The disciples had this show-and-tell ministry. So in Luke 9, Jesus tells them to go out preaching the good news and healing the sick. And then in Luke 10, he sends them out again, and he says, go out, heal the sick, and preach the good news. It's a show and tell, or tell and show ministry. You can't separate them. It's constantly together. It doesn't matter which way around we do it, as long as we get on with it. Some people might say, well, that was the disciples. That was the 12, or that was the 72. Well, then what do we do with Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples and teach them to observe all the commands that I have given you? We are those who have heard through their message. Just look at the people whom the disciples trained. The disciples trained people like Philip. Philip. We went to Samaria. What happens? Healing breaks out. 
People like Stephen. They said of Stephen, he was one through whom God did amazing miracles. Think of Paul. Paul may be the most prolific preacher of the gospel of all time. And yet he had this free healing ministry that ran alongside his message of the kingdom. To the point where people would take handkerchiefs that he prayed over and put it on people and they would get well. Healing and the message of the kingdom constantly flowing together. Bill Johnson, senior pastor of Bethel Church in the States, a church known for its pursuit of healing in the gospel. He spoke this about his early experiences, and I really like this. He said this, you keep reading the gospels, and you find that healing never leaves the gospels. It's always there on every page. At some point, you have to deal with it. You either have to turn a cold shoulder and think, this is just not for me, it's not for this time. Or else you're obligated to pursue healing and find out more about it. I wound up telling myself, I may stink at this, but it's pretty clear that we're supposed to do it. Can you identify with that? That it's absolutely clear that this is part of our mandate as Christians, as just normal, everyday believers, that we are to express the kingdom and pray for healing and see the sick recovered. It's, it's just it's basic to who we are. And yet sometimes, do you ever feel like, oh, I really stink at this? You know, I've prayed for ten people and I, I think maybe one of them might have had some improvement. Have you ever felt like that? I've felt like that a few times. It doesn't mean we stop. It doesn't mean that we... Uh, assume that God hasn't given us that kind of anointing. Yes, there are people with special grace and special faith in this area, but it should be part of all, the kit bag of all of us. We have the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Whether we like it or not, healing is an essential part of the gospel. So, here's the stumbling block for many of us. What do we do when we face disappointments in the area of healing. It can be incredibly painful when we pray and we muster every ounce of our faith. We dig deep and we uh, come before God, we cleanse our lives, we, we consecrate ourselves, we fast and we get on our faces before God to pray and we call prayer meetings and we agree with people and we pray the scriptures and we do everything that we can do because a loved one is sick and they need a touch of God, and then for some reason they're not healed. That can be incredibly painful. At those moments, it's easy to drop into fear and disappointment, just like the Israelites did in the wilderness, and allow ourselves to change in a negative way. We cry out inside, it's horrible, I'm scared, I don't like where I found myself, my faith has no rationale for this, I don't get it, where is God? What, God, what must God be like to allow this? And it hurts, and I understand, it hurts. I remember when my dad was in his last few weeks, my father died of cancer in 2005, and he had a five year long battle with cancer. Um, and my father was one of these incredibly able men. He was a very practical man. A bit of an alpha male type. 
He emigrated to Australia, even though he had terminal cancer. Um, but he was still quite fit and well. And his favourite pastime when he emigrated to Australia was hunting wild boar on the back of trail bikes. Well, he was that kind of dad. Uh, he loved being like super physical. And so towards the end of his treatment, he became weaker and weaker and weaker. And that was really hard for my dad to cope with. But he was a fighter. I mean, he'd been a, a boxer and a rugby sevens player when he was in the army when he was younger. He didn't give up. He, was, he just kept coming back swinging. And he didn't know how to die either. He didn't, he didn't have a kind of plan B. It was like, just beat this thing. And so even though he'd been given six months to live four years earlier, here he was with one leg and staples right across his tummy. It looked like a massive zip going across his tummy with the cling film stuff over the top. And he had a colostomy bag and he, he was on a drip with intravenous morphine. And somehow, even though he had a lot of water retention, somehow my dad suddenly seemed very small. As a boy, he was this giant of a man. I'm bigger than him, but he was six foot. But he seemed like a giant to me as a boy because he was that kind of dad. But here was my dad, small, losing this battle of his life. And I had prayed through the entire five years that my dad would be well. When he had the first diagnosis and he seemed completely fit and healthy, I'd say, God, you can do this. I believe you can do this. I was a very young believer. I'd only sort of given my heart to Jesus properly for like about six months when I heard my dad had this diagnosis. And in my childlike faith, I had prayed, and I knew that at least somewhere along the way, it was at least as big as a mustard seed. It should have done something. And here he was in his last few weeks, looking like he'd just walked off a battlefield or been pushed off a battlefield. What does that do to a young man's faith? <coughs> I remember being there with Mary in Sydney in this cheap hotel that was just around the corner from the hospital. Uh, and talking with Mary and saying, even now, God could do this. Even now, God could remove this from him. Even now, it, he could make that leg grow back. This is God we're praying to. And I had faith even then that God, if he wanted to, could do this, if it was possible. And I lost him. And it hurts, man. It hurts. I had some important conversations with him about his faith, about his salvation. And he said, I trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. You know, I, that's what I'm going to say when I get there. I, I didn't see anything else in his lifestyle that particularly spoke of being a follower of Jesus. Uh, but that's what he said. And I just felt the Lord say, you can trust me with your dad. But that was not the outcome that I was praying for. So I'm not here speaking to you from a place of only triumph. Having never suffered in this way, having never had my prayers not answered. If you've prayed with faith and you've lost loved ones, my heart goes out to you. It's horrible, it's painful. So what do we do? What do we do when we've lost a battle or two, when our faith is 
not in this way? Do we build a theology to explain why people don't get healed? Do we construct a, whole bunch, construct a whole bunch of excuses why we should stop praying for the sick or trusting God altogether? Some people take that option. Or do we walk by faith and not by what we see? Do we agree with the word and with the character of Jesus? Do we claim by faith that God is and always will be Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals? It's who he is. Do we roll over? And allow the devil to drown us in disappointment? Or do we recommit to the call of Christ to go after the total healing of humanity and the overthrow of the power of hell? We've got some decisions to make when we hit this kind of disappointment. I lost my dad. But what if the healing of someone else's dad was dependent on my faith to pray to to a God who has revealed himself as a healer? I may have lost a loved one to cancer, but what if I can see a hundred people delivered from cancer by my faith in a passionate healing God? What if? Backing down and making excuses will not win the war. Persistence and trust will win in the end. We have to live with the tension of the promise of God's clear intention to heal and less than 100% success when we pray. We have to live with that as a tension, as a mystery, as something we haven't fully understood yet. And in that tension, we have to daily gather fresh faith to pray with. Like gathering manna in the wilderness. Every morning, we need fresh grace. We need a fresh understanding of God. We need God to replenish our faith so that we have His faith to pray with. So to finish, I just want to try and help us by destroying some common myths about healing that have been flying around the church for years. I want to deal the devil a few killer punches before I finish. So, myth number one. You don't get healed because you don't have enough faith. That's not true. Faith is important when praying. We know that. Faith is something that is integral to our prayer life. And I'm not diminishing faith. I'll be preaching on faith one of these days and I'll tell you how important faith is. Okay? Faith is important, but it does not limit God. God can do what he likes. God can heal even when we're completely faithless. Have you ever prayed for someone feeling completely faithless for them and God does it anyway? And I've definitely prayed for people that don't believe themselves but are having a punt on it. God often does it anyway. And it's amazing. That's when I really come back to God and say, God, you're amazing. I just, I had no faith in that moment. I prayed out of obedience and you did it anyway. I love it. And I think this has always been the case. Don't tell me that everybody that came to Jesus was a giant of faith. I just don't believe they were. I think lots of people came to Jesus in his day because there was no NHS. And they thought they'd just have a punt on this Messiah that had wandered into town. They got healed anyway. Some people were just dragged to see Jesus by a friend, even though they were skeptics. And they came up, they, they experienced that anointing of Jesus. And he just healed them anyway. Most people didn't come back to say thank you, and he healed them anyway. Human nature hasn't changed that much. Faith is important, but it's not always essential. Common myth number two you don't get healed when you're in unforgiveness. Have you heard that? 
Not true. It can be a problem, but not always. It doesn't limit God. I remember listening to a talk by Todd White, uh, a guy who was really contended uh, for this healing ministry, and he goes out into the streets often and uh, ministers healing to people he meets on the streets, and he's seen incredible signs and wonders and miracles in his ministry, something that I really admire because of his boldness. But he, I remember him telling a story one time of uh, praying for a guy that was incredibly angry at God and incredibly angry at his family. He saw this guy kind of limping up the street and he said, well, that, that's fair game. So he went over and uh, he said, we're out here praying today. Can, can I pray for you? I notice you've got a, a limp. He says, no, you're not praying for me. He said, I've got this limp because of what they did to me. I got this limp because of my parents. I was abused as a kid, and I've still got this limp because of everything that happened back then. I'm not having you pray for me, and I don't believe that God exists. What kind of God would let my parents do that to me? He said, if you heal me, then I'll let them, let them off the hook. No, this, this limp, this limp is a testimony to how despicable these people are. Don't you dare pray for me. <laughs> I loved it. It's a great story. So he says, well, look, I won't, I won't pray for you here and now, but do you know what? Um, I I think life would be better if you didn't have the limp and maybe God can do something in your family as well. And he's like, don't you dare pray for me. And so he limps off, throwing curses over his shoulder. And Todd just said, God, would you just take over and deal with this guy? And as he was limping away, shouting curses over his shoulder, he noticed his walk just started to move along. And he was just walking like any normal human being, still shouting stuff over his shoulder. And as he disappeared around the corner, Todd was just on his face before God, saying, God, you did it anyway. I've never seen anyone so bitter and twisted and angry, and you still healed him. I believe that. Because God knows how messed up we can be, and he knows how uh, bad we are at sorting ourselves out. Do you think he withholds all his blessings just because we're not able to sort ourselves out? No. He loves to jump over those barriers and heal anyway. He can heal you even if you're bitter and twisted. What about number three? God sometimes allows sickness and infirmity to improve your character. Have you heard that? I think this can be true, but I think it's very, very rare. You see hardly any examples of this in Scripture. You got in the Old Testament, you got Miriam. She got leprosy because she was a naughty girl. She had her thinking all wrong. She got leprosy. She was outside the camp for a few days. God healed her, brought her back. that happened Paul temporary blindness on the road to Damascus it was only a few days Ananias comes, he's healed, he's back on track Paul's thorn in the flesh this is the one they'll quote at you a word about Paul's thorn in the flesh that was so that the grace of God could be enhanced in his life and he's asked many many times to have this thorn in his flesh taken away And God has not taken it away because his strength is perfected in Paul's weakness. Therefore, my condition must be just, this is my thorn in the flesh, just like Paul. We don't actually know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. It's been a gift to theologians because there's been so much ink spilt about it. It's kept theologians alive for years and years and years and years. But we don't actually know what it was. Nobody does. It could have been a mental health thing, it could have been a physical health thing, it could have been uh, a spiritual torment, we, we, don't, we don't actually know. But it was a weakness. It was a difficult limitation of some kind that caused him pain, and somehow it enhanced the ministry that God had assigned to him. 
It threw him upon God's grace. And I've seen this done in a beautiful way many times. Um, think of Nick Vidic, you know that guy with no arms and no legs? How many people has that man spoken to around the world? How many young people has he encouraged and inspired and brought to Christ because he has no arms and no legs? He's it, something about Nick just shines partly because of his limitation. It's because he worships and he ministers and he has this full and beautiful life despite his weakness that somehow propels his ministry. And he's a more wonderful human being because of it. God does use those things sometimes to, share, to show his glory and to display his strength. But it's, you compare in the scripture the amount of times people come before God or have an interaction with God the amount of times they get healed and the amount of times they have a sickness. And look at what the ratio is of what happens when people encounter God and sickness. What happens to sickness when people bring it to God? 99% of the time throughout scripture, it's a, re- a healing result. It's not somebody that is given a sickness for some other purpose. Paul had a very specific ministry. And for some reason, God used that to, to enhance the calling that Paul had. I don't think that's going to be the case for most of us. And we're so quick sometimes to jump to that conclusion that that our pain is God's character development program for me. And they forget that God's essential nature is that he's a healer. So we need to drop our excuses and bad theology. And we need to stand next to the Lord, our healer. We need to go after this thing this call of the kingdom. We are never going to learn to operate in the full grace of the kingdom and the power of the Holy Spirit while we're keeping a ton of excuses at our disposal. Amen? These are like rocks and obstacles in our path. They stop us from running the race that is set before us. We've got one model, and that is Jesus Christ, who is a healer. We have one Holy Spirit, the one that raised Jesus from the dead. We're not here to wait for heaven. Our full-time job is to destroy the works of hell. Amen? I believe the Lord is looking at his church in the 21st century and saying, Church, do you still want that job? Do you still want to go after healing? The Lord is looking for representatives, those who will represent Jesus, who will represent him. Those who will learn to trust the Father and his revealed character, and keep pressing in for full kingdom grace, even when we're hurt and messed up and confused by the situations that don't line up with what should be possible under full kingdom grace. We have to let the failures drive our determination to see success, rather than allow our failures to drive false theology. God is and always will be Jehovah Rapha. It's who he is. And we can rely on him to heal. How should we respond? Well, I think three ways. I think one of the ways that we need to respond is with repentance. I think we need to renounce our excuses and our false theologies. So often they are offered to us by the lion and they come from the pit of hell. We need to start walking towards faith for healing again. Amen? If you think you've constructed a negative theology, it's time to repent. 
Second thing is we need to worship in the light of who God is. It's something about proclaiming who God is, about worshipping God as being the healer, as, as the one whose essence is the healer, who has committed himself to, the one who, to be the one who heals. It's something about when we worship that our faith lines up with our confession. And thirdly, we need to do as we're told. We need to pray for healing. We need to be obedient to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. So let's pray for healing this morning as well.